You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. It's been a busy week. Uh, graduation at the St. Cyprian's Diocesan Theological College in Tunis um, on Wednesday and Thursday, then flying back, and then Saturday was 25 hours in a plane from Berlin to Birmingham. So forgive me for needing a bit of caffeine. <laughs> Two very different things that are actually related. What's a healthy understanding of competition? And What's the red thread that runs through Cramner's liturgy? How in the world can those two things be related? Well, fasten your seatbelts. I'll do my best to explain how. First of all, let's take the concept of competition. What is competition? It's simply a specific form of comparison, correct? It's designed to find out who is uh, better at something than someone else in a whole variety of different areas of life. It can be sport, uh, it can be social position, um, it can be money. In New York City and Wall Street, it's all three of those wrapped up in one. The literature either talks about competition as something that it's a God-given drive to seek perfection and that competition helps you achieve perfection, or competition is the worst toxic thing that human beings ever invented to screw up the goodness of God's creation. How many think that uh, competition is a God-given thing. How many think God competition is the worst thing that human beings ever devised to oppress people? <laughs> How many think it's both? The difficulty is that people either praise it or despise it, but don't actually uh, define it and study it to understand what's going on. Uh, anyone here uh, take piano lessons? When you took piano lessons, did your piano teacher ever play for you first the piece that she or he was going to teach you? Did she do that to humiliate you? <laughs> to let you know what you were never going to be able to do? Why would a piano teacher, my piano teacher was female, so why would she do that? Give us a target to aspire to. To let you know how it's done right, right? and to give you an idea of what you're trying to learn how to do, to capture the beauty 
and to be moved by the music and to be inspired to compare what you're doing with that memory of what she did so that you seek to get better, right? Um, anyone ever uh, uh, play sports? In sports, uh, you do you have an idol? Uh, someone you want to model yourself after, right? Why? Because you want, you watch what they do and you figure out how close you can come to doing that too. Has anyone ever wondered what's the real purpose of Simon Cowell on these singing contests besides owning them and making a whole lot of money for himself? What's his, what's his rule? He's the reality check, right? No matter how gifted you may think you are, Simon Cowell can hear your voice and instantly compare it, right, to all the other people he's heard and to the people he knows are now what sells, and he can give you accurate feedback whether you should keep your day job or whether this is your new career that you should invest everything in, right? Comparison can be an incredibly healthy way to discover what we're good at and how to get better at what we're good at. It didn't take me long to figure out in church I should stick to talking and not singing because I want to sing in the worst possible way and that's just how it comes out. <laughs> in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 Paul is trying to inspire the Corinthians to dig deeper and to give more. And how does he do that? He holds up the example of the Macedonians who in the midst of their poverty and brokenness was able to give exceedingly more than one could ask for or even imagine. Now, is the Apostle Paul shaming the Corinthians? I'll never forget being at a conference which was uh, f based on a free will offering and it was in a stadium and they passed the Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets around and then an hour later they came back on stage and passed the Kentucky Fried Chicken buckets around again saying we hadn't got enough, not enough money had been given to cover the costs dig deeper is that what Paul is doing Shaming them to try harder. It's being recorded. I'm wondering if I can get away with this. There, uh, uh, a young, uh, now very uh, famous uh, English evangelist and I were talking about what it was like to be around John Stott. And... John Stott was a full human being, but he was the most mortified, disciplined person we had ever seen. 
This is 1990, and it's now all public knowledge. But in 1990, he earned a million U.S. dollars in royalties, and he gave it all away. At the same time, we have televangelists getting grandmothers to send in their wedding rings for a, 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 a luxury lifestyle. He earned a million dollars, and he, he gave it for a fund for commentaries uh, um, for uh, majority world pastors so that they could help their preaching. That's where his royalties went. And we were just bemoaning how unsanctified we were in comparison to John Stott. And then we started laughing. We realized we were looking at John Stott at 75, not at 25, where the Holy Spirit had had years and years and years to refine him. But the point is, that image of John Stott has never left me. And when I think about what it looks like as a Christian to be mortified and to be the work of the Spirit, I think of him. That's what Paul is saying. It is so difficult to figure out what a person filled with the Spirit looks like until you meet one, right? And then you say, Lord, let me be more like that. Do in me what you did in that. Paul says that comparison is essential for the Christian life to discover what God is making us to be to give us role models and mirrors to help us understand what we need to ask him to do in us that we cannot do for ourselves. But you know, that's not how we think about comparison, is it? We don't think about comparison as the means of self-discovery which is how God intends it, which can be really positive. We think about comparison as the way to prove our worth. And when we use comparison to prove our worth, it's utterly and completely toxic. Paul balances 2 Corinthians 8, be inspired by the example of other fellow Christians. By the way, at the very end of that section, he says, you know, it was your initial giving which inspired the Macedonians in the first place. It's that we each inspire each other as God works in us. He balances that out with 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Yes, there are differences in the body but each person has worth and value based not on what they do, but God having made them part of the body. And when we use comparison not to help us understand what God is calling us to be and do, but we use it to prove we're better 
than other people. That's where all the evil and the shame and the hurt and the pain comes. You realize that most elite athletes don't compete to win. Do you know, you know that? Because they know the joy of victory doesn't last long. They compete not to lose because their worth and value is based on winning. And if they lose, the fear and shame seems eternal. Have you ever heard of someone called Wilt Chamberlain? He played for Kansas in 1954. They went to the Final Four, but um, they didn't, they didn't uh, make it past the semis. And he left Kansas and started his professional career and never came back. We understood, why would you come back, <laughs> right? Until the 50th anniversary where he gets up and says, I let the people of Kansas down. I was too ashamed to ever come back. If you are a competitor and I ask you about your most embarrassing competition, all of that pain just floods back, doesn't it? If I ask you the moment of great victory, it doesn't have the same intensity or feel, does it? And once you've gotten on that hamster wheel of using competition to prove your importance, it never stops. Do you know what I discovered when I was uh, working as a clergyman on Wall Street? <clears throat> In New York, the purpose of making money is not for what money will buy. You never have time to, <laughs> to spend it. It's how you keep score. They hire ex-jocks for whom proving themselves better than other people is what makes them tick. And now that they can't do it athletically, they do it financially. How about Southern manners? <clears throat> southern manners can be all about being consciously thoughtful of other folks and exhibiting the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Or it can be other things too, can't it? If you get your self-esteem by proving yourself better than other people, two things, you never stop and you're always insecure, aren't you? Because you have to always. Isn't that the whole thing in the high school in-group and out-group? That the people in the in-group figure out quickly that there's people who are more in than them in the in-group? And they have to constantly please everyone in the in-group to stay in the in-group, right? And it gets really exhausting, but it's better than the alternative. 
That's not what God called us to. He called us to get our worth and value from his love, his performance on the cross. If you've heard me speak before, you've heard me say, medals have to be earned, that's right and good. Love can't be earned. If it's earned, it's not love. What do we base our self-esteem on? God's love and promise to complete the good work we've begun? Or what we do? And depending on the answer to that question, that tells us what we would do with competition. Anyone have, have children or grandchildren involved in sport? Or any other kinds of competition, musical or, I mean, academic? It's all. It's the lifeblood of American culture, right? Encourage them to use competition as a way to discover what they're good at, what God has called them to be, what are the character resources they need to thrive in the midst of the pressure. But constantly be reminding them, you won today, man, that is so cool because it doesn't always happen and you've worked really hard. Let's go celebrate. But before you do, remember, I won't love you any more if you win again. And I won't love you any less if you don't. I love you and I'm proud of you just for you're my kid. And you say the opposite. You worked hard, but it didn't happen today. And that hurts. And I know when things don't go well, you like to go in your cave. You like to talk all about it, whatever your kid does. But before we do that, just know I don't love you any less. And I won't love you anymore. There's nothing you can do to change how much I love you. And you say that every time. So that when the big disappointments come and you say it, you'll have trained yourself how to respond because it's so easy to live through our kids and be disappointed at their disappointments and they'll know you mean it because you have sown the seeds. Well, how does a sense of healthy comparison versus toxic comparison have to do with our liturgy? It's all about speaking the reality that our relationship with God is not based on our comparison to him that we have to be good like him and better than other people I don't know about you but one of the things I struggle with is when I hear a preacher get up and talk about the gospel and it doesn't matter what the preacher says but there's just this oozing smugness I've chosen wisely. I'm following Jesus. Have you chosen wisely? Are you good like me? 
and better than other people who have it. Have you ever come across that? Or that is so contrary to the gospel and contrary to Cramner. Haven't you noticed that the red thread that goes throughout Cramner's liturgy is it's the glory of God to love the unworthy. Human beings love to, worth, to love the worthy, right? But that's not God. As Jesus says, I am a, phys a physician who's come to seek out the sick. The ones who know that they need me, that they have tried to be a rose bush in the desert. Despite what I created them for, they're in the wrong soil, planted in their own efforts, and all they do is struggle to survive, never to blossom and grow. But I love the unworthy and my love gives them a worth and value that will not go away. Morning and evening prayer. We open up with that most despised line in all of Cranarian liturgy. Do y'all uh, know what that line is? And there is no health in us. Right? Does that mean that we're denigrating human beings? No, we're just recognizing that we have sinned sick souls that apart from the healing, ongoing, sustaining presence of Jesus, we are toxic to ourselves and others, not healthy. How does the how does the communion service open? Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, in whom from seek no secrets are hid. Wow. Does that talk about human worth? Human perfection? Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Forgive us because of who you are. Then we will worthily magnify thy name. Didn't I miss something? Perfectly love thee. Once we know that he gives us a value that does not go away, gratitude emerges, we love him, and out of our love comes our good works. Not our good works to convince him to love us. Isn't that one of the hardest things as a parent? You know that you should give unconditional love to your kids, but you so much want to reward and reinforce in every way possible when they do good as a way to help them grow, right? I have a friend, uh, her son was a golden boy, a really fine young man. Uh, star athlete, highly intelligent, charming, and really thoughtful. But he got depressed and made some bad decisions and ended up getting arrested for underage drinking. 
and he's in jail. And he calls his mom because he has to get bailed out. He's crying. He's never been in a situation like this. He's never tarnished his reputation. And he says, am I a disappointment to you? And his mom gets it right. I am disappointed in what you've done. You're never a disappointment to me. That's Cramner's liturgy throughout. Call it to purity, Ten Commandments. Have mercy upon us and incline our hearts. Why does God have to incline our hearts to keep this law? Because without his sustaining grace, we will incline the other way, right? The prayer of humble access, we are not worthy. And at the end of his communion serves the glory in Excelsius. And he says it over and over, O Lamb of God. Son of the Father, that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Thou that takest away the sins of the world, have mercy upon us. Thou that takest away the sins of the world, receive our prayer. Why does he keep hitting that over and over? This is supposed to be glorifying God. This is supposed to be the high point of the service. You know how many liturgical scholars talk about what a downer this is? And if you'll notice, in the modern liturgies, they've moved it from the end to the beginning of the service. What did Cranmer think he was doing? Why would he repeat that at the end as a, a, a note to send people out on? It's the glory of God to forgive the unworthy. Winston Churchill once commented, someone said to him, Clement Attlee is such a humble man. And Churchill's response, yes, he has so much to be humble about. <laughs> Could it be that Cramner repeats over and over again our need for forgiveness because we have so many ways and such depth that we are sinners? that we instinctively rely on our own strength and ideas rather than God and God's ways. And in our anxiety and insecurity, all of our best efforts are still tainted by fear of rejection and a degree of selfishness. And although we can do wonderful things, nothing is healthy in us apart for him and therefore when we compare ourselves to God we do not do it to prove our worth but to discover our need for him and even more important what he does in us the difference that he makes that as we are, as flawed and miswired, he makes our hearts the place of his habitation and the good 
changes he begins to make, he brings to completion the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't it wonderful that one of the foremost theologians in our Christian tradition got it right? That comparison can help us understand our gifts, but most important, comparison helps us understand both our need for God and God's intention and goodness for us in this world and the world to come. I am told I should be kind and leave a few minutes for questions. Yes, sir. In, in your, your working with athletes, has this been a, um, I guess, the main competitors? Is this an easy or a, kind of a way to share the gospel with them? Yes. I'm so sorry. Sorry, is this uh, uh, your, your kind of discussion competition? Right. Uh, is this a way you share the gospel with athletes in your, in your working with athletes? Like if they have a hard time in their losses? I don't know what's going on. No, 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 no. I was just reading this morning about more top-level elite athletes quitting. In the last two years, mental health, not just how to cope, with significant loss, but uh, really difficult struggles with whether life is worth living in the last two to three years has become rampant in elite circles. I mean, what I do is preach the gospel, which is simply giving meaning to loss and the hope of something to come out of it. Uh, who can tell me what it's like to weight train? Does it hurt? I'm still hurting. I play collegiate tennis. Okay. And isn't it? But when you weight train, actually, when you begin to hurt. Right, and, it's, and it gives you hope of better things to come, right? How about the pain of injury? What's that like? Because it makes you think that everything you've worked for is lost. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.com.